We are very few in number. I, uh, it's almost tempting to like, do something different than what I prepared, but I got a call on, or the email from Mitch on Friday morning, and, and I prepared it, so I'm going to do it. And also, um, there's a couple people who asked for the recording, so for their sake, I will go ahead with, with the message that we have here. John chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 22 to the end of the chapter. Before we do that, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come to you and into your word and ask that you reveal it to us. May your truth be spoken. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you think about um, religious arguments. There's been a lot of religious arguments throughout time. Um, sometimes religious organizations argue about stuff that aren't religious, aren't, aren't even related to the Bible or theology or things like that. When you hear about the proverbial church split over the color of the carpet or things like that. But arguments, right? I mean, they're, they're a part of, of religion. Um, Ever since Christ started the church, there was, there's been people who fought against heresy or argued over doctrinal points. You look at the Inquisition that the Catholic Church put um, a lot of people through, and in, in a lot of cases, those were people who were actually fighting for truth, but they were persecuted to a great deal, uh, a great level because of the argument over, over religious things, over truth. So argument in religion is, is, nothing, is nothing new. In this passage here, verse 25 says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. It's essentially an argument, a debate. It's what the word means. So as we look at this tonight, we're going to read that passage, but as we look at this tonight, this is, this is where I'm going. Our focus ought to be on magnifying Christ to a level so increasingly great that we disappear. And purification for souls that results in eternal life is found only in obedience to the teaching of Jesus. So that's, that's the main thought. That's where we're going to go with this tonight. So I'll read verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan talking about Jesus. He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from a heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So as I said, I'm kind of looking at this from the angle that there's an argument here, there's a discussion. And I think we all love to argue, really. Sometimes maybe we're, we're shy or lacking in courage to make our voice heard, but I think we all love to argue. And maybe, maybe saying lacking in courage isn't the right way to say it. Maybe that's not precise. But what I mean is that it's not wisdom that keeps us from, from speaking, or, but it's, it's fear or pride. It's, um, it's not knowledge of the truth that is the foundation of our thoughts, but a desire to be right for the sake of our pride, a desire to be on the winning side. Or on the flip side, a fear of, of, being, of losing the argument or, or being wrong that might stop us from speaking out. So it's entirely possible to have a correct, logical, even biblical position and be totally wrong in our motivations for desiring to argue a point or be silent about something. So we may not make our voice heard, but we, I think we all probably love to argue. In our own heads, we have all the reasons laid out for who should be the next president or why a teacher or preacher isn't good at what they do or the list just goes on. It could be anything. And so maybe we only tell our spouse or a close friend or just harbor those arguments in our head, but, but I think we all love to argue. In this passage of Scripture, there is an argument taking place, and we see in that verse 25 that it's about purification, moral purification. It's not a, it's not a light matter. It's, it's a very, very weighty matter with implications for eternal life or eternal death. Implications for eternal joy in the presence of God or et the eternal weight of God's wrath remaining on a person. Verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we see the contrast there, right? Those who do not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on them as opposed to those who do believe, those who do obey. And so this is a weighty matter. The stage is set with an argument over this matter of purification, moral purification, over obedience as it is specifically tied to baptism in this context. And I think we, uh, we especially maybe like to argue about purification. We think about the filth in our culture. We look at the degraded way in which our government and culture and institutions and families and individual citizens live and operate. And so anybody with any sensitivity of conscience or, or a moral compass that's not confused by the magnet of sin can see that these things, government, culture, families, citizens, are in a state of, of rot and filth and decay. And we seek answers and solutions, and we have discussions and debates on what are we going to do to clean up the mess. 
And there are varying views and heated discussions on what to do about the violent gun culture. What do we do about the drug culture? Do we decriminalize drugs? Do we send them to users to prison? Do we rehabilitate them? Is it a victimless crime? How do we cleanse the problem? What do we do about things like abortion? Do we legislate morality? How do we cleanse the problem? What about same-sex marriage? How do we cleanse the problem? And there's other issues. If you're paying even a little bit of attention, you can't miss debates over things like um, obesity in the healthcare system. You know, uh, why should I have to pay healthcare for somebody who treats their body this way? And so, do we need to enact some sort of regulation or law? What about childhood obesity? Do we enact government regulations on sugary snacks? What's a better form of government? What will better serve to purify the nation and its, and its problems? Is it capitalism or socialism or something else? What about hunger and poverty? And it, and it just goes on. I even read a news article about a pastor of a church in one of Chicago's most violent neighborhoods. And um, he holds political views that are in disagreement with the long-held political views of the community where he preaches. And so he thinks that the political views that he holds would be much healthier for his community and solve its problems, so he invites major political candidates that he agrees with to come speak to the congregation where he is a leader. So there's no doubt there's problems everywhere, and we, we have debates and arguments and discussions seeking solutions for, for the issue of cleansing problems, of moral purification. So at the end of John chapter 3, we have this argument, discussion. That's, that's the, the, the Greek word. It connotes something more like, like that, like a debate, a controversy. Um, in the NIV, as a matter of fact, I've, I've read this from the ESV, the English Standard Version, but the NIV does translate that these, there was an argument. And it's, it's probably a commentary uh, that the NIV has chosen that word, but I think they're correct. It's an argument that's going on here between some of the disciples of John the Baptist and a Jew over purification. So, we see that Jesus has left the busy area of, of, uh, where, around Jerusalem where he's been, and he's, he's gone out into the countryside now, and he's continue, continuing on with his, with his mission, and he is baptizing, and John the Baptist is baptizing also. Verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. So it's obvious that baptism is a key part of the teaching of Christ. And it's a key part of the teaching of John the Baptist who came before Christ. It's, it's, in fact, it's connected inextricably to the teaching that they were giving. Baptism came as part of it. We know from passages in Matthew and Luke that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that Malachi gave that that a messenger would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. John came preaching boldly for people to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand and he baptized with a baptism of repentance. His message was for people to turn from sin, to be baptized and to watch for the Messiah. We also notice in the text that it takes much water. It was a place where water was very plentiful. And in keeping with other Jewish Jewish rituals of the day, we we then draw the conclusion that baptism is immersion. 
That's what it means. That's what that Greek word means. So there was in a place of plentiful water so they could immerse people as part of this teaching. And John and Jesus in a place of much water immersing people who were responding to their teaching. And then as you look through that text, the, the writer John, of the writer of the gospel, stops and he, and he puts in a parenthetical reference that John had not yet been put in prison. And it kind of seems almost out of place. And so it raises a question, at least in my mind, why is that there? What does it add to the purpose of this context that they were in this spot to baptize people who came to them and responded to their teaching? Well, we know from other Gospels why John was in prison, right? He, he was in prison because he told Herod that his marriage was not lawful. It was not acceptable to God. And he also told Herod that he had, had done many other wicked things. But the, the specific thing that we know that he told Herod was that his marriage was not lawful. He had taken another man's wife. It was an adulterous relationship. And John preached a baptism of repentance. He was telling Herod, you have to turn from this. You're going to have to put this woman out of your life. She's not your wife. And so maybe this is in there because it's an allusion to why John ended up in prison. He preached a baptism that required a change of heart and a putting away of sin, and he went so far as to preach to Herod himself and demand repentance from Herod himself. So the baptism that John and Jesus are offering, it's not a meaningless um, ritual, a simple act that's done thoughtlessly, but it's an act offered to those who brought forth repentant hearts and fruits in keeping with repentance. In fact, we know from this text that baptism is connected to moral purification. That's what the argument's about. It's baptism that marked a person who was obedient and sorrowful and was turning from sin. So the argument arises between John's disciples and a Jew over purification as it relates to people being baptized. It's a serious thing. These two great teachers have been baptizing multitudes with their respective disciples. So, it is not a small matter. It's not a, a small argument. It's a serious argument. It would have John end in prison, and he would be beheaded for the way he preached. So, we have this, this argument. They're seeking an answer over purification. And so you can imagine, it's, very, it's a very passionate argument. We're, we're familiar with passionate arguments. I mean... Don't discuss religion and politics, right? I mean, it's, it gets very passionate. So there's an argument here. There's a debate. So verse 25, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. The Jews were, were intimately familiar with baptismal activities. There was many rituals for washing and immersing. Back in chapter 2 at the, the wedding feast, um, Jesus commanded those large purification jars to be filled with water. And those were jars that would be used for immersing Things like pots and pans for ritual purification. So we have a discussion over purification and, and baptism. We don't have really any clue as to exactly what it's about. We just know that it's an argument over purification. And, and it leads to this statement that they come to John and they say, um, all the people are going to Jesus now. That's, that's what it comes to. And... Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. All are going to him. So based on the context and our knowledge that this statement has arisen from a debate over purification, I, I think I take it to mean that 
Anybody who's looking for purification now is going to Jesus. They're, they're not coming to you anymore. They're going to Jesus. And they were going to Jesus for the baptism he offered, which, we, as we see in John chapter 4, verse 2, that his disciples were actually doing, not Jesus himself. But they're going over to Jesus. So this argument or discussion about baptism and purification, we don't have any details, really. We just know that's what it is. The details are missing, but it's apparent that John's disciples believe this baptism is necessary. For what? Maybe to gain followers for their teacher? They, they think that his baptism is the true baptism of repentance, and, and as opposed to just a ritual Jewish cleansing, and that's what these people need to be doing. They, maybe they think um, John's, it's just necessary that they come to John. Whatever it is, there is a genuine concern that people are now going to Jesus and not to John. All who are looking for purification are going to Jesus to be baptized by those who follow him. Follow him. So apparently this is a great concern, disciples of John the Baptist, and we don't know exactly why. Why don't? I don't why, why aren't the details there? Why aren't the specifics there? Why don't we know more about it? Well, I guess if there was anything really profitable in those specifics, God would have revealed it to us. But I think John does settle the argument. Whatever the specifics are, John does settle the argument. But there is one specific thing I think we can notice here in this context. That specific thing is in John's answer. And he says the the specific is that Christ is the bridegroom. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So, John says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Why is his joy complete? Because the bridegroom is here. This is the reason he's been speaking and preaching and teaching. This is why he's been sent. This is what God gave him to do to to clear the way so that people could come to the bridegroom. He's only been pointing people to where they need to go, and his joy is complete. So he's giving an answer to his disciples. Christ must have the position of prominence. This is what John has been witnessing about. He's not been witnessing about Jesus so that he could get the glory, but so that Christ would increase. The bridegroom is the one who gets the glory. If there's any hope for being a purified bride, if there's any hope for eternal life, It's found in believing in the Son and the purification of his baptism. So we could fill in that discussion. We could fill in the blanks of it with anything we want. All the specifics that we don't know from the argument, we could fill it in with anything we want. But if in the end, the resolution is not that Christ is the all in all, then none of those things are of any profit. There's no profit in an argument that doesn't resolve itself in Christ as the all in all. So if we summarize with some bullet points of, of the main thought of the text so far, John the Baptist 
is a messenger preparing the way for the Messiah. He is preaching and baptizing unto repentance of sin. His baptism is a matter of purification. He keeps baptizing until he cannot baptize anymore because he's imprisoned because of preaching against sin. He keeps preaching even as the crowds who come to him are dwindling. And he's joyful that the crowds are dwindling because that means he's been teaching well. And these well-taught people are going to the Messiah. They are the bride going to the bridegroom. John's ministry was never even slightly about himself. It was always totally about putting people on the path to Christ. And his disciples then, they have the wrong focus. So that brings me back to the, the main thought. Our focus ought to be on magnifying Christ to a level so increasingly great that we disappear. Purification for souls that results in eternal life is found only in obedience to the teaching of Jesus. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I am more and more convinced that all of our arguing for Political positions are just the debates of men speaking in earthly ways. No moral striving will ever purify a soul. The correct president won't purify a soul. The correct health care system will never purify a soul. A conquered issue will never purify a soul. A leader magnified as the one to be the flag bearer of liberal or conservative political principles will never purify a soul. A reputation as a person of unassailable logic and prowess in defeating opposing arguments will never purify a soul. Our focus must be on living like Christ and pointing others to him through our actions and our words. Only Christ has the message from above. Only Christ has the testimony from the Father. If we are speaking the message of the gospel of Christ... Then we are speaking the words of God and setting our seal to the fact that God is true. God is faithful, and he will accept those who come to him through the Son. The only hope for a world lost in filth and rot and decay is through the Son whom the Father loves. Jesus is the only way. Obedience to Jesus, the purification that only Jesus can provide, is the only hope for the wrath of God to be lifted. So our focus ought to be on magnifying Christ to a level so increasingly great that we disappear. Purification for souls that results in eternal life is found only in obedience to the teaching of Jesus. So the challenge is this. Follow the example of John the Baptist of turning people to Jesus. The focus must always and totally be Jesus. There are no political or economic solutions there are no psychological or therapeutic solutions. There are no debates which, if won, that will provide the solution. 
If we have come to the Father through the Son, if we have been obediently baptized into the death of Jesus and raised to walk in newness of life, then Christ must increase in our lives so that the only life-giving, eternally lasting truth can be seen. Jesus is the only hope for those who remain under the wrath of God.